You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Good morning. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Ohio Republican Congressman Mike Turner, chair of the House Intelligence Committee, sent Washington a buzz by posting an unusual and cryptic public statement about a, quote, serious national security threat. What was that all about? Let's ask Shane Harris, intelligence and national security reporter for The Washington Post. Shane, welcome back to First Look. Hi, Jonathan. Good morning. Um, So before we talk about uh, Chairman Turner, the huge news uh, out of Russia this morning about the death of Alexei Navalny. Um, Shane, real quickly, tell, tell people who might not know who he is, one, well, who he was, and two, why his death is um, sending shockwaves around the world. Sure. Well, Navalny was probably the most prominent and successful anti-Putin uh, figure in Russia. He's a strong uh, uh, opponent of the Putin regime, uh, and for that reason, has been in prison the past three years at a very remote prison north of the Arctic Circle. You know, he really was on the global stage the leading figure of opposition to Putin's autocratic regime. Uh, and seen as really sort of the best hope for what might be possibly a democratic future in Russia. Many people will know Navalny from the Oscar-winning documentary that bears his name that was made a few years ago. So his death is quite shocking. We should say it's also still quite mysterious. All we know from prison officials is that they say that he collapsed after taking a walk. Uh, which doesn't necessarily sound like what you would expect to happen in a otherwise healthy 47-year-old. So we will probably learn more about this, but it's shocking and yet sadly uh, unexpected. I think many people felt Navalny might never see the outside of the prison where Russia was holding him. Right. And yesterday, he, Navalny was at a public hearing or some, some sort of hearing where he looked quite healthy. Also, real, real fast, Shane, should, should I, am I reading too much into the timing of Navalny's death. And I, and I ask that question because right now, um, national security foreign policy leaders are meeting at the Munich Security Summit. And Navalny's wife was supposed to be on a, on a panel with former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton today at the security conference. Yeah, I I don't think it's too much to certainly ask questions about that timing. We know that Vladimir Putin stages events and conducts uh, his affairs uh, according to these kinds of anniversaries that are very important to him and is very aware of the prominence that Navalny uh, receives uh, and of what would be going on at Munich. So while it's too early to say right now if that has anything to do with it, I think that is a very fair and good question. All right, let's turn our attention to Chairman um, Mike Turner and that cryptic tweet he sent out. Explain what what he was talking about and how serious the threat is. Well, on Wednesday, uh, Chairman Turner, who is the Republican who oversees the House Intel Committee, sent out this reference to some kind of new destabilizing military capability, um, which when you put something out there, that's like catnip to people like me who are going to then try and figure out what he was talking about. And what my colleagues and I determined is that he was referring to a new space-based military capability, or a weapon, I think we can call it, that Russia has developed, though not deployed, that would use a nuclear weapon in some way to disable or interfere with satellites that are orbiting the Earth. These could be possibly communication satellites, maybe things like GPS, which we all rely on every day if you're using Waze or Google Maps. Uh, uh, So it was a, a really alarming, 
uh, a revelation and one that, as you said, kind of set Washington abuzz trying to figure out not only what was he talking about, but how seriously should we be taking this? And is it something that poses a threat uh, right now? Well, does the United States have the capability of, of stopping a space-based nuclear weapon that could destroy a satellite? It's a really good question. I think the U.S. probably has capabilities to disable a satellite that might be in space. Certainly, they might be able to shoot one down with a missile fired from here on Earth. The Russians actually did that a few years ago, demonstrating that capability. But if a nuclear weapon goes off in outer space, and the U.S. has tested this back in the 1960s, the devastation could be pretty significant. You're talking about sending radiation and other you know, particles throughout orbit that could damage you know, not just the satellites nearby, but potentially others in other places in, in orbit. I don't know what the countermeasure would be to that necessarily. A lot of these satellites are fixed in place. Um, but I think what the United States is trying to do now, we understand, is come up with some kind of maybe diplomatic solution or way of persuading the Russians you really don't want to do this because mm -hmm. to set up a nuclear weapon in space, I have to say, the United States would treat that as maybe not an act of war, but pretty darn close. And there would be a serious U.S. military response to that event. You know, Congressman Seth Moulton said he was briefed on these plans two years ago. Uh, and because it's highly sensitive intelligence, he has kept it secret. Uh, he's suggesting that Turner leaked information. Did he? Well, I don't know that I would go so far as to say the chairman leaked it. Uh, what he did, though, was, was tip his hand in such a way that it gave enough thread for journalists to pull on to figure out what he was talking about. Now, we should note that the day before he issued this statement, so this would have been on Tuesday, the House Intel Committee took a vote uh, and approved making this intelligence available to all members of Congress, which they can do when they follow the legal process to do that. Now, it was Turner's choice to then publicly talk about that and give people enough of a lead to, to figure out what he was doing. So, you know, maybe it's a leak in the eye of the beholder, but certainly the White House is furious and other members of Congress are as well about what Turner did. Well, on that point, yes, the White House um, is furious. Let's listen to what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had to say about this. I am a bit surprised that Congressman Turner came out publicly today in advance of a meeting on the books for me to go sit with him alongside our intelligence and defense professionals tomorrow. That's his choice to do that. All I can tell you is that I'm focused on going to see him, sit with him, as well as the other House members of the Gang of Eight tomorrow. And I'm not in a position to say anything further from this podium at this time, other than to make the broad point that this administration has gone further uh, and in more creative, more strategic ways, dealt with the declass declassification of intelligence in the national interest of the United States than any administration in history. So, um, Shane, I was trying to see um, up in the corner what um, the date of when Jake spoke. And I don't know if that was yesterday or the day before. But has has the National Security Advisor had a chance to meet with the Intelligence Committee chair uh, and any idea why the chairman decided to make this all public? Yeah, this is, Jake Sullivan has gone up to the Hill and has been briefing some members and some more senior members. Uh, why Turner decided to make this public now is an interesting question. We've talked to some sources who said that this is part of a debate that has been roiling the Congress 
over surveillance law and intelligence collection authorities. There's a very controversial law and a provision called Section 702 that listeners may know about that is up for a debate right now. Some Republicans oppose this. Turner actually supports it. And some have speculated that he wanted to expose this uh, uh, Russian system and say, look, it's because of this powerful law, Section 702, that the U.S. knows what the Russians are doing. So you can see the value of this tool to my fellow members, renew the legislation. <clears throat> that may be one reason. The White House is also saying, though, that they were planning to at some point, and I gather maybe even in the near future, declassify some of this information after they had a chance to make it ready for public consumption, to sanitize it, to maybe take out some details. They're saying that Turner basically got ahead of them on that and jumped the gun. And you can hear Jake Sullivan saying, I don't know why he would do this when I was planning to go up there and brief him personally in the coming days. So that gives you a sense of the tension. Um, Chairman Turner, for his part, has actually come out, he came out yesterday and said he does believe that the administration is going to declassify more. I think he sounded maybe even a little bit chastened because the backlash to what he did, including from members on the committee, was pretty significant. Mm -hmm. um, Shane, I'm gonna hold you a little bit longer um, just to ask you a mushed up question about the Munich uh, Security Conference because the news about this um, potential space-based nuclear weapon from Russia comes as, um, you know, Congress is in this bitter standoff about whether to give money, more money to Ukraine in its fight against Russia and Donald Trump encouraging Russia to, quote, do whatever the hell, you, do whatever the hell they want to any NATO country um, that doesn't uh, spend enough money on its own defense. Um, one, what message does that send to that to um, what message is that sending to Russia? And then part two. Vice President Harris um, was speaking uh, as we were coming on. She might still be speaking at the Munich Security Conference. What do you think she's hearing from European allies, given what, given what Trump said about NATO? Well, I think President, former President Trump's comments about NATO will, will, what it says to Russia is something that Putin already knows, which is that if Donald Trump is the president, NATO will not be able <clears throat> to count on stalwart, unwavering U.S. support for that decades-old alliance. Donald Trump has talked publicly about wanting to pull the U.S. out of NATO. His former national security advisor, John Bolton, has said that if he's reelected, that's what he thinks he's going to do. So Trump is really reinforcing that message of a lack of U.S. support for NATO uh, when he says that. And I'm sure the Russians are watching that very closely as they are the election. As to what Vice President Harris is probably hearing from European allies, I suspect it's not all that different from when I talk to my European security sources, which is that they're very concerned about the possibility that Donald Trump would pull out of NATO or would not come to the defense of a NATO ally if it were threatened by Russia. Uh, they kind of have, you know, they've, they've been to the rodeo once before already with this and had real misgivings about the way that Donald Trump seemed to condition U.S. support and membership in NATO on whether or not countries were paying their dues which to be clear, everyone thinks countries should pay their dues, but Trump has always made this transactional. And I think that those anxieties are bubbling up again now as European countries are looking at the prospect of a second Trump uh, administration. I remember Vice President Harris's first trip, her first speech to the Munich Security Conference and she did a Q&A with the outgoing president. Maybe you were even there, Shane. And he, his first question to her was, President Biden said America's back, but Madam Vice President, the question is, 
for how long? Um, three years, four, four years later, the question is still relevant. Shane Harris, intelligence and national security reporter for the Washington Post. Thank you very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. You bet you too, Jonathan. Thanks a lot. Time for the Opinions Roundtable. So let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post associate editor and columnist Ruth Marcus and Washington Post columnist Ramesh Panuru. Ruth, Ramesh, welcome back to First Look. Morning. Thanks, so lots to talk about, <laughs> lots to talk about. But first, let me um, get each of you um, your thoughts or reactions to the news out of Russia about the death of Alexei Navalny. Ruth. Um, it's it's tragic. Um, thank you to uh, Alexei Navalny and his entire family for um, everything they've done to call attention to Putin's um, behavior and the danger he poses. And I hope if there's one good thing that comes out of this tragedy, it's to really reinforce the importance of standing up to Putin and in particular um, to reinforce the importance of giving um, funding to Ukraine. I, it would be a, a disservice to Navalny's memory uh, not to approve this aid. Ramesh? Uh, you know, the thing that Putin um, held against people, held, holds against people like Navalny, is they challenge the equation that is so crucial to his regime, which is that he speaks for Russia, he stands for Russia, he is sort of in some way identical to Russia. Uh, and if you're against him, you're anti-Russian. And Navalny was one of the brave people who was willing to challenge that. And we should all remember that um, there are a lot of Russians who are better than Putin and who stand for uh, more decency and uh, honesty and democracy. Um, the other thing that is happening as we speak right now, um, the hearing in Georgia um, related to DA, um, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis um, and the challenge to her uh, being the, the, the prosecutor in the election interference trial there in Georgia. Yesterday, she shocked not only her lawyers, but the country by walking into the courtroom, um, um, willing to, um, what's, I don't know the, the term of art, you're the lawyer, Ruth. She decided to answer the subpoena and said, I'm ready to go. Uh, I would love to get both of your, your insights into what we saw yesterday and where we think where we think things are, especially with the second part of the hearings uh, about to get underway in Georgia right now. Ruth, you're the lawyer. I don't know if you're a lawyer, Ramesh, um, but I know Ruth is, so one. Ruth goes first. <laughs> Sorry, Ramesh does does really really well for somebody who's not a lawyer. Let me, let me just say that. Um, I thought bottom line from yesterday is there is not enough evidence that the lawyers brought out to support the disqualification of Fonnie Willis. Uh, there's not adequate proof that this relate that she she and Nathan Wade lied to the court about when their relationship started, and there's not adequate proof um, because it was apparently all cash transactions that she benefited financially from the money that he drew from his service as special counsel. Um, that said, I thought it was 
kind of, I, I'm going to, I'm trying out some lines I'm going to use in a column. I thought it was my cousin Vinny meets real housewives of Atlanta. It was <laughs> must see TV. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you like it. Um, really bad, really bad lawyering. And honestly, really inappropriate behavior by a prosecutor. I'm sure lots of people watched Fonnie Willis and thought, you go girl. I watched it and I cringed. This is not the kind of information and behavior and observations that we want to hear from our prosecutors. I thought um, she, in one sense, stood up to Donald Trump and his allies, but she really, while she'll survive this episode in terms of disqualification, I thought she really tarnished herself. But she was answering questions, though. Ruth, are you saying that she went, she didn't just answer the question, she went beyond answering the question? Oh, yes. When you're talking about how you had, how your 50th birthday sucked and you prefer Grey Goose to fine wine and this is the guy you were romantically involved with, but he thinks the only role for women is to make him a sandwich, but you also put him in charge of the most important case you'll ever oversee. I think the one thing that lawyers instruct their clients is only answer the precise question asked and no more. That was not, that was advice that Fannie Willis should have given herself and didn't. You know, Ramesh, listening to, to Ruth's answer, I'm sitting here and thinking, so what did DA Willis do that we haven't seen Trump do outside of courtrooms for the last six months or so? Well, you know, I, I, I couldn't help but thinking um, that the dramatic gesture that Bonnie Willis made was sort of Trumpian in a way. I mean, it's the kind of move where you could see him watching the uh, uh, the show and thinking, yeah, that that was uh, that was that was a good move on her part. Um, th but the, there's of course there's a difference in roles, and um, there's a certain um, degree of needing to live up to the sort of seriousness and majesty of the law um, when you are invoking that uh, as in your case against Trump. You know. You asked, what did he, what did she do that Trump hasn't done? Well, that's kind of Trump's message, isn't it? Right? I do the same. Everybody else behaves as poorly as I do, and I'm the one who gets picked on in court over it. Uh, and so it's it's satisfying to turn the tables. So I think this is just one respect in which this uh, this set of misjudgments on Willis's part has really played into Trump's hands. But I, um, one more point, though, I have oh, to yeah, make. Yeah. It is, uh, I totally agree with Ruth. It's always important to take the opportunity to plug my cousin Vinny. And if any young people are watching, you should go out and watch that. <laughs> the youths. Um, I'll just, I will just say, um, maybe because I'm not an attorney, I was in the You Go Girl uh, camp. Let's talk about somebody else who was in, in a courtroom yesterday, and that was Donald Trump. Yesterday, the judge in the New York Hush Money case ruled that Trump will face his first criminal trial beginning on March 25th, just weeks after Super Tuesday. Uh, we've seen Trump use the court appearances to speak to his supporters. Uh, this seems to have helped him thus far, but will that continue, do you think, Ramesh? You know, it's so hard, I think, to uh, even for people whose job it is to keep track of all of the cases against Trump, um, I think, which is a function, I think, 
as he says, both of the the opposition he arouses, but also of it's also a function of all the questionable behavior um, in which he's engaged. Um, I've always thought that this prosecution, the Bragg prosecution in New York, is the least compelling of the cases against Trump. Uh, and and it's getting back into the news as opposed to the I think the more serious cases like the document cases or the federal prosecution on election interference. Um, in a way, I think it deserves the sort of the more serious case against Trump. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure he's annoyed oh, by it, but it also kind of helps him in a way. Uh huh. Ruth. I'm almost entirely in agreement with Ramesh, and I think this was the real news from yesterday while we were all um, glued to um, Fonnie Willis's testimony. Here's the reality. For the first time in American history, a former president of the United States, um, not to mention the leading candidate um, for presidency in the um, November election, is going to stand criminal trial. That's News piece number one. News piece number two is he is going to stand criminal trial in a case that is, and I agree with Ramesh here, the weakest of the cases against him. That's not to say that his behavior wasn't um, actually egregious. He tried, I think the evidence shows that he and Michael Cohen conspired to pay off Stormy Daniels to keep information quiet and not, not just in order to keep it from Melania Trump, but in order to keep relevant information from the voters at a critical time. This is this, this um, payoff was arranged exactly at the time that the Access Hollywood tape came out. But it's a, but this sort of feeds into Trump's hands in the sense that it looks like it's going after his private behavior. And it feeds into Trump's hands legally in the sense that I think that as a legal matter, this is the weakest of the cases. You have to take a New York crime that's a crime of allegedly falsifying business records and somehow turn that into a felony by pointing to another crime that President Trump allegedly um, engaged in, perhaps, um, perhaps um, a federal uh, election law violation. This is a stretch, and so I'm really nervous that this is the first case. Uh, Ruth, let me get you on one more thing, because we know Trump's campaign is impacted by the court cases, but, while, but how will his court cases be impacted the further he goes in wrapping up the Republican presidential nomination? Well, it, we are entering unknown and dangerous territory in terms of the electoral calendar. We'll know a little bit more perhaps today, perhaps next week, about how the election interference case against him is going to proceed or not when we hear from the Supreme Court about how they're going to deal with the immunity challenge there. But what we're setting up is this astonishing collision of the um, his seizing the nomination, the Republican convention, the fall campaign, and Trump being stuck in court because he actually has to be there um, standing trial as a criminal defendant. And we really don't have any understanding about how this is going to play out. And the courts really don't have any good pre-existing template for how to balance these two imperatives, the imperatives of the legal system and the imperatives of the electoral calendar. Um, one, speaking of calendar, um, NBC News has a, has a story 
that <laughs> there, are, there folks would like Donald Trump to deliver the Republican response to the State of the Union address, to President Biden's State of the Union address. Ramesh, is that a good idea for Republicans? Well, I think uh, it is uh, it is a terrible uh, but very on brand idea. Um, you know, uh, Trump is moving to install um, his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, as co-chair of the Republican National Committee. And she has said that every last dollar of the RNC should be spent on the presidential election, um, which, you know, what about the House? What about the Senate? What about governors? And um, you've uh, you've got to think this is just another step in the Republican Party becoming just a Trump property. Yeah, R Ruth. Total, totally agree. This is the Republican Party is a wholly owned and operated subsidiary of Trump Inc. And um, every last dollar of the Republican National Committee's uh, money is going to go, I think, to paying Trump's lawyers. Um, but but can we talk about p politically? So with the national with the so politically, you know, I guess might as well, right? I mean, that all we're going to be talking about all year is um, Biden Trump. With who knows if they're going to ever debate each other? So maybe you might as well have them um, clashing in this, you know, first big event of uh, 2024. It, it couldn't it could not be more obvious right i think to everybody uh, who follows politics that biden loses this election if it's a referendum on biden but biden might well win if it is a choice between trump and biden or if it is defined as, as a referendum on trump but trump is very likely to play into the Biden strategy by making it about himself. And if he were to deliver the response to the State of the Union address, it would be an example of this. Making himself the story actually doesn't serve his own interest, but that doesn't mean he won't do it. Right. That's what I, when I saw this story, I was like, yeah, it's totally on brand, but oh my God, do they not see what they're doing, should that even be considered an in-kind contribution to the Biden-Harris 2024 campaign? I want to say you guys have convinced me. You're right. That <laughs> idea. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on where you sit. Bad idea if you are if you are a Republican running for office at any any level on the ballot. And here's this guy who's sucking up all the oxygen, reminding people why they voted him out of office four years ago. But you know, uh, uh, on the other hand, if you if you're a Democrat or the Biden campaign, you're like, come on, bring it, remind every remind everybody. Also, do you think he would actually adhere to how long do those responses go? Usually, maybe like 15 minutes, 20 minutes. We could be in for a marathon. Yeah, he is. Okay. He is capable of occasionally um, playing against type. So when he won the Iowa caucuses, uh, it, he gave what was for him a gracious and, and statesmanlike <laughs> address. And of course, he couldn't maintain that tone. But you know, but he could. It is possible he would be able to maintain that tone for the duration of a State of the Union address. 
or excuse me, response. And it would be, it would be smart if he was going to do this at all for him to do that. But again, you just, you certainly can't count on it. Wait, Ruth, yeah, he, and, wasn't, you know, he wasn't gracious in to, Iowa. You have to wonder if he's willing to be number two. This is a man who doesn't believe that President Biden is the elected president of the United States. So why should he be responding to a State of the Union address from this usurper? It's the whole, you know, 2024 is just crazy town. <laughs> I just, I, wow. Um, I want to end on a serious note and come back to um, the Munich Security Conference where um, the vice president spoke, said that flat out Russia is responsible for the death of Navalny. But I'm going to ask you both the same question I asked Shane, and that is, you know, three years ago when, when the vice president gave her first speech at Munich, um, she was asked by the outgoing president of the security conference, you know, President Biden said America is back, but the question is, for how long? And now here we are three years later, and the question seems to be more urgent, given what Donald Trump said about NATO. Uh, Ruth and Ramesh, should, are the Europeans justified in being worried about the potential of a second Donald Trump presidency? Oh, 100% hair on fire level worry. Um, during the first, I hate to say this phrase, but during the first Trump administration, I used to ask um, world leaders who, who came through the office or um, foreign officials how lasting the damage of the Trump presidency would be. And, you know, with President Biden coming back in and reaffirming alliances and reassuring allies that you think you like to tell yourself, well, maybe that was survivable. But but now we know he's just like this um, virus that keeps returning. And I think that every every ally of the United States, every foreign leader has reason to worry. What about America? Ramesh? I think the best case scenario, which was to some extent realized during the Trump administration, is that all of the worries that Europe has about the U.S. and its reliability as an ally translate into increased European defense expenditures. Um, and if if that were to happen, uh, I think uh, Europe would be stronger. The alliance might end up being stronger too. And it's it is frankly what needs what ought to happen, even if Biden is going to continue in office. Ramesh Panuru, Ruth Marcus, uh, bless you twice. I think you <laughs> sneeze to you sneeze off camera. Sorry uh, thank that. you both. Thank you both very much for coming uh, back to First Look. Have a great weekend. You too. You too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.